Hello and welcome to Frock Flicks, the historical costume, movie, and TV podcast. I'm your fill-in host, Kendra Van Cleave, and today we are costume recapping the first episode of Season 2 of Outlander. We'll be recapping all of the episodes of Season 2 on our blog at frockflicks.com and also in a podcast, which you can get from our website or by downloading from iTunes. Today it's just going to be Kendra talking a bit about the first episode of the season. Sarah will be joining me for the rest of the episodes, so hopefully things will get a little bit more silly. All right, so we're back, and it's not quite 1740-what? Now I've already forgotten the year! Oh no, 1740-something, because the episode actually starts with the flash-forward. Now, I have to say, to start, that... I am a huge fan of the books. I started reading them in college, and granted, it's probably been about 10 years since I've read Dragonfly and Amber, the second book on which this series is based. And of course, starting to watch this series makes me want to go back and read it. So I'm going to try to reference the book as much as I can, but my memory is going to be a bit fuzzy. Sorry. So just like the book, so just like the book, this episode starts with that flash forward. Claire has arrived back in what is now 1948, I believe, and she arrives back at the Standing Stones at Craignadoon, and she's clearly very not happy. She shows up in her very Scottish wool outfit. I think it's a sort of heathery brown wool with a bodice with a stomacher and a very tightly cartridge pleated wool skirt. It's a really pretty outfit um, for that woolly Scottish look. Of course, while I was enjoying the show, there was a part of me that kept saying, wait, but France, sparkles. I don't know about you, but I've been seeing all of the teaser images coming out, and hot damn, am I ready to get to France and to talk about all those outfits. But instead, Claire is found, and I actually found it really tragic when she asks the man in the car who won the Battle of Culloden. Because, of course, for him, not that it isn't personal, but it's his personal history. For her, it's her personal life. And it brought home to me just the... It was just a little flash that brought home to me the sort of the pain of living through war and and the desperation she must feel not knowing what's happened to Jamie. So she's brought to the hospital and they go and get poor Frank. And then a good half of the episode is Claire and Frank reconnecting. So they go to their friend's house, well, Frank's friend, the Reverend Wakefield, who's a fellow historian. And they spend about a week before Claire and Frank really have a heart-to-heart. Now, my vague memory from the books is that Claire never clearly tells him what's happened to her. I mean, she tells him, I remember specifically, there's lots of references to the fact that he sort of took her back even though she turned up sort of raving and pregnant with obviously another man's child. But I never was clear that Frank absolutely knew, or the, and then of course Reverend Wakefield absolutely knew what had happened to Claire. So I thought that that was interesting. I don't know how quite you would get around telling your husband where you've been for three years, 
But at the same time, my memory is that in the book, you don't see that as specifically because that's all in the past. In fact, the book, I believe, begins some years in the future from Claire's return. But nonetheless, it was interesting to see, and of course, interesting to watch her deal with the emotion she has for Frank and the fact that he's now um, been merged in her mind with horrible Jack Randall. Poor guy. He certainly does not is not going to have it easy with that one. I did like how Claire's clothes that she was wearing were a really important element of the episode, um, in particular her stays, uh, what we would modernly call her corset. It looked like a pretty nice cut uh, for the 18th century. The, the boning layout looked nice. I assume it's made of, it was made of linen. Um, it was kind of a gray color, and it was hard to see too many details, but I like that it was sort of this tangible representation, both for her and for Frank, of where she's been. In terms of everybody's clothes in the first half, there weren't really a lot of standouts. Of course, it was interesting to see Claire back in 1940s wear. Um, I particularly noticed the skirt that she wore when, I believe, in the last scene at the Reverend's house, which had that sort of fitted through the hip silhouette and then the two pleats at each knee that then allows the skirt to flare. And then and then her suit, which she wears on the plane over to Boston. The cut seemed very nice, and in particular the angle of the pockets is very was very 1940s. And then, of course, she had her hair up in a snood. I do question why Claire's hair hadn't grown longer. I know she has curly hair, but she's been gone for three years. She's in the 18th century. She's clearly not getting regular haircuts, so why doesn't she have longer hair? That being said, her hair is curly, so maybe it doesn't show length as much. Nah, I'm one of those people who likes to quibble about little continuity things. And then, of course, you've got Frank in his nice suits. It was, again, interesting to watch play out the sort of the two of them deciding to move forward in their lives. The whole idea, of course, is that Culloden has happened. Jamie is most likely to have died then. And so there's nothing for Claire to attempt to go back to the 18th century for. And now she's got to come up with her own life moving forward in the 20th century. And then finally, we get to switch back to 1740-something in France. And this opening episode was set in Le Havre, uh, port city in France. They've just come off the boat. And Claire spends pretty much the whole episode in her one woolly brown, very Scottish dress. I like the fabric. I think it was uh, very nice and again, feels very Scottish to me in that sort of heathery wool. It has a stomacher, which had some spangle embroidery, and I like that added a little flash of something shiny to her dress. It did have the proverbial back lacing, which sadly seems to be par for the course with this show, and in their defense is par for the course with a lot of 18th century productions. It always drives me crazy, however, because the whole idea of a stomacher is that it's a separate piece. So imagine putting on a bathrobe that's open down the front, but also laces in the back. Why? It makes no sense. Yes, uh, the dress doesn't close all the way in front, but that's what the stomacher is there. It's there to fill in. And the whole point of a dress with a stomacher 
in addition to the fact that that's just how they conceptualize women's dresses in the 18th century, which goes back to the origins of women's 18th century dress in the late 17th century, where it started essentially as a dressing gown. But the whole idea is that you have some adjustability because the dress sort of comes to about your the center of your breast on each side, and then your stomacher fills in. And what's nice is you can squinch it a little tighter, a little looser. The stomacher allows you some room to play. The nice thing is that they don't use metal grommets, which, as we know, are the visible panty lines of historical costuming. Uh, if you haven't read that post on our blog, you definitely should. So I appreciate that. They're definitely threaded eyelets, whether they're done by machine or hand. I don't care. I don't expect a movie or TV to accurately recreate costumes in the sense of making them in the same way that they would have in the 18th century, because that's a much slower process. And one of the most obvious things that's come out of all of the great press that's coming out around uh, season two's costumes is that they had to make thousands of costumes. Um, according to the costume designer, Terry Dresbach, uh, they costumed all the extras, all of everything. So that's a lot of work to do. And with anyone, I don't expect that. I also like, I think that the back was spiral laced as opposed to crisscross lacing, which again is a, a accurate to the 18th century. Spiral lacing is where you actually take one lace, one string, imagine. You start from the top and you sort of loop it down in a spiral going left, right, left, right, left, right with that one lacing. And the lacing holes are offset in a particular way that that works. So they're not side by side. Crisscross lacing is much more of a 19th century and onwards uh, approach. No idea why, it just is. So anyway, the one other thing um, that I thought is of note of Claire's outfit um, is the skirt being cartridge pleated. Now, this show loves cartridge pleating, and I'm a little confused why. In my mind, it makes a lot of sense for the traditional Scottish clothing, which in some ways is a little bit more 17th century with the sort of the boned bodice and skirt uh, of the 17th century. Cartridge pleating would definitely be appropriate then. In the 18th century, what they really liked were box and knife pleats. And if you're a costume geek and you know the difference, um, it's basically, it's a flatter style of pleating. It's more what we think of modernly as pleating. Cartridge pleating is a way that really thickens um, the pleats and makes them sort of stand away from the body. And it's more something you'd see in the 16th and 17th century. Now, the one nice advantage to cartridge pleating is it works well when you have a lot of fabric and when you have bulky fabric. And I will say on the, the very Scottish style gowns, which are a, a heavier wool, it does make sense to me that, that they're approaching that. Uh, it's a little spoilery, or not really, just in some of the images I've seen of the, the French style dressing or and like we've seen it on Claire's wedding dress um, in uh, season one, they're still doing cartridge pleating on lighter... Uh, finer skirts, um, and that's really not something you would see in, in the era. It's certainly not something that's seen on surviving dresses, but we can talk more about that when we actually see some real examples. Claire gets off the boat with her hair down, and that's always seems to be sort of her nod to being a 20th century woman. She clearly doesn't like putting her hair up, 
it kind of gets on my nerves just because it's impractical. And I feel like most 18th century people would look at a woman walking around with her hair down and think that she was literally insane. It would kind of be like walking down the street and seeing someone, um, I don't know, maybe with one shoe on or one boob flopping out of their shirt. But you know, she's got to do what she's got to do. Later on, she did get her hair up. Jamie's suit didn't really catch my eye. Uh, or suits, plural, I'm not sure which, or Murtaugh, although I know, first off, I know I'm pronouncing Murtaugh's name wrong. I absolutely suck at anything related to a Scottish accent. But they were both dressed very Scottish, particularly Murtaugh. He had the, what looks like a beret to me, and I'm sure is absolutely not. I guess it's a Tam, right? We know that because of the wonderful review that Brenna wrote for our blog, frockflicks.com all about men's uh, costumes in Outlander. The nice thing is we did get to see two shiny boys. We got to first see Jamie's cousin, Jared. I loved his outfit. He was wearing this beautiful green silk satin coat. Um, and that color green, it's kind of an asparagus green. I mean, that that is like one of my top colors. So I spent the whole, all of the scenes where they were negotiating the wine business and the Jacobite stuff just staring at his coat. It had gorgeous cuffs, really big, with buttons, and then also um, stylized um, sort of applied bands of the same color um, representing the sort of button loops. And that's definitely something you see in the 18th century um, on menswear, and then you'll see it on womenswear that's inspired by menswear where the buttons aren't functional, and so they become stylized, and so they'll use these beautiful trims to represent what would actually be a buttonhole, but not actually cut the buttonhole. So I thought that was lovely. Um, I like that he was wearing a wig, uh, a brown wig, not powdered. Something tells me we're not going to see a lot of powder in this, but we'll talk more about that in the future. The wig uh, had three buckles, or the rolls that you see, um, right up sort of above the ear, the one thing, and this is a nitpick, is the the hair being long all the way from the very front of the wig to the back. That's what a lot of people think or sort of think they're seeing when they look at images of 18th century wigs. But in my research, I haven't found any 18th century wigs, wig styles represented in art uh, that aren't, that don't have the, the sort of front hair around the face cut somehow shorter. That area was called the toupee. And hey, factoid of the day, that's where you, we get our modern word to pay. And the back longer hair was called the queue. How much of that front hair is cut short varies by era. In this era, it would probably be to sort of about two inches width, worth up to about the ear. Um, would somehow be cut shorter, could be curled under, could just be curly. In some way, should be shorter and distinct. Um, by the time you get to the 1780s, that shorter hair has extended all the way back to the crown of the head. Ah, there you go, it's a nitpick. And then we get to see the Comte Saint-Germain, um, who is a, a famous person from history. Um, he apparently, he's one of those sort of like Cagliostro types, I think, who like uh, claimed he was like a thousand years old and never was seen to eat or drink, drink in public. Uh, random factoid. Anyway. I loved his shiny, shiny outfit, um, a real pink waistcoat, and then I want to say maybe a brown uh, coat that, again, was a beautiful silk satin um, and very nicely made, um, and then he was wearing a gray wig. I couldn't entirely tell if it was powdered or not, 
Um, it would be historically accurate to wear a gray wig. Um, the whole reason that powdering became popular, in addition to the fact that it sort of acts like a dry shampoo and deals with grease and things like that, is that is just the sort of scarcity idea. Um, as wigs came into fashion um, and people were buying essentially other people's hair to then turn it into a wig, white hair was the rarest and then gray was the second rarest, and so those became really popular. And then people started powdering both just to sort of to care for their, their wigs and their own hair, because um, it helps with grease and things like that, um, but also to try to achieve a gray color. Anyway, there's your other random interesting history factoid for this podcast. So I loved that, and I thought that the comp was pretty foxy with his dark eyebrows and... Uh, and he looked tall too, which makes me happy. One other thing um, of note that I wanted to point out, um, I liked that Jamie clearly spoke French with a Scottish accent. I thought that that was cute. Claire obviously speaks French, I would assume, from her time um, in France during World War II. Um, but I loved the shots, the sort of um, scenic shots of Le Havre Harbor. Um, and I'm assuming that they did that digitally, but what I loved were all the old um, 16th century, 17th century, tall, skinny, half-timbered houses. Um, and I thought that they just did a beautiful job making it look like this is an old city that's very, you know, lived in. And these are um, not the cleanest, sparkliest, shiny houses. Of course, they wouldn't be, you know, the current trend or whatever and I just it, I thought they did a really beautiful job with that cityscape um, in those shots so I'm really excited to see what they're going to do in terms of the the French or excuse me the Par the Parisian city shots that should be great too so the ball is rolling uh, Jamie has agreed to try to uh, thwart the Jacobite rebellion and they're going to do it through his cousin Jasper and Jamie's going to be taking over the wine business uh, while Jasper's in the West Indies and conveniently gets to live in his house in Paris and Jasper's going to hook him up with all his Jacobite contacts. So things will continue. Now, of course, this has been bookended by Claire. We know now that Claire is at some point going to go back to the future or back to her own present. Um, so we know that that's coming and we know that that's happened after Culloden. So now we've got to fill in what happens in between. So I am super excited to get to France and see all of the shiny and discuss all of those costumes with you. And in the future episodes, I will again, I'll have Sarah here to uh, help analyze all those costumes. She just needs a little bit more time. She might just be catching up on season one. So she needs a little bit more time to catch up on that. So she'll be joining me as of next week. Uh, with episode two, and hopefully we'll have a whole lot more shiny to discuss. So stay tuned for next week and check out our blog at frockflix.com uh, where we'll have um, an episode recap with lots of screenshots so we can look at all of these costumes um, with a visual aid, which is always helpful. And be sure to follow us on Facebook at Frockflix um, and on Twitter at Frockflix. Until next week, bye!